Um, shout out to Juliet Landau, who played Drusilla, because she really inspired that ballerina goth look. She really brought coffin nails and stiletto nails to the mainstream. Um, she was doing it for all of the pretty sad girls. Hey everyone, this is Alex and M. Welcome to our first ever episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. This is the podcast for millennials and Gen X who are caught up in the nostalgia of the entertainment of our youth. On this podcast, we're going to discuss be discussing what we loved, what we hated, and what was just a bit problematic about a lot of our faves. Although not necessarily in that order. First up on the chopping block of public opinion is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy is one of the most quintessential GBB shows ever and is still beloved by millions of fans worldwide. Based on the 1992 film starring Christy Swanson as Buffy and Donald Sutherland as her first watcher, Merrick, the TV series begins a few months after where the film leaves off. Buffy premiered in 1997 as a mid-season replacement for the short-lived and forgettable WB series Savannah and became a cultural icon. So, because Buffy is seven seasons long, we decided to break this episode into two parts and we'll be discussing seasons one through four. The big question is, what do we think made Buffy such a hit? And how well has the former breakout hit aged? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Let's jump into it, you guys. We're reviewing seasons one through four of Buffy and everything we loved, everything we hated, and what was just a little bit basic about all of them, if anything. So you kick it off, Em. All right. So season one is my second favorite season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It is the shortest season. Um, Again, this was a mid-season replacement for the TV series Savannah, which was like the WB's response to Melrose Place. (laughs) But um, although it was only 12 seasons long, this season is my second favorite for a few reasons. It was campy. It was funny. Although the subject matter was dark, the humor was always very light. And I loved all of the standalone episodes. You didn't have to watch this, the, the episode before in order to understand the current episode. And at the same time, you wanted to because this is probably the only season of Buffy that wasn't just entertaining. It was fun. Yes, um, I love season one. I think uh it's very strong. Um, it's strong. And one of the big things that I love about season one, and I think the series overall in general, is the sort of like bright colors, um, how it's like shot, like the show is very bright. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we definitely in like 2019 and 
and not even just 2019, I think The Sopranos ushered in this trend of like muted gray colors means you're watching like a serious show. And Mm. I love that Buffy is um, a very serious show, very like strongly written, but isn't afraid to like be bright and be like colored, be well colored and fun uh, when it needs to be and when it wants to be. Uh, This Joss Whedon, I think, is very famous for um, being like a huge comic book geek. And that first season very much feels like uh, panels of a comic book. Um, And that's like a I think that's to its like credit and its strength, not to its detriment. Mm -hmm. I agree. And it's interesting that you say that because um, this is a trend that I that I've noticed as well. Um, I want to say in the last 15, 20 even years where shows are, are like, you know, everything's is gray or filmed in the shadows to show you that it's serious. And while I think this, this isn't, this is not an intrinsically bad way to shoot dramas. Um, it could, it's arguably lazy because you know, from the way it's shot, that it's a drama without the actual dialogue and acting informing you of that. Mm, That's, that's real. I think, yeah, you know, I just, I more than anything, I find it just like tiring this sort of like muted gray palette. I may more maybe because I'm a person that like I love color. I think color can tell you so much about so many things, and I definitely look for it. Um, in and I think you can have a a drama that that's not so dark and 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 sad. I think you can have like different color palettes to like have moments of like levity um in not even just like muted color but like rich like have have like color be like rich and saturated to like convey like a certain tone or a certain meaning i think mm-hmm. funny enough something that does this uh if i if like in recent memory i think a show that does this is like uh riverdale i think in some aspects they yes. like, have like very rich like colors, like a rich color palette, like to the show um, that and I think that's part of the reason it's part of the reason Sabrina does it as well. Um, and that's part of the reason why I think those shows stand out the way they do mm-hmm. is because they're not afraid to um, to do that, to really go. There. Well, Riverdale, Riverdale had to do something right, girl, because <laughs> <laughs> I think like listen, I. If Riverdale nails anything, I think it nails its like visual, like its visual um sort of like pattern. Fully like agree. Fully its agree. visual and, personality. And, and I expected Sabrina to do the same thing because um um Sabrina and Riverdale are like adjacent um storylines. Yeah, so, they're done by the same creator. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I agree that I love I, I love color as well. I love the colors used on Buffy. And I don't just mean that the, the brightly lit ways it, it's shot, but just the way that the kids are dressed. I love the 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 array of pastel colored mini skirts and frosted lipstick. Like it it for me, it is just so late 90s. Again, the show premiered in 1997 and we didn't realize it at the time that that style of dress was already starting to die out. Like now that first season and the second season are like time capsule. I think where this is the most present is a uh, season one, episode three, the witch, all those cheerleading segments are very like really wonderful. 
Um, even, and I think one of my favorite things is to even catch like that quick shot of, um, like the old school, like Adidas sneakers, like on the girls, like that's, it's just all. Yes, really- yes, yes, yes. I like, and that's, I, I mean, Buffy did it. I know there were other shows in the late nineties that did it too, but I can't stress this enough. Like, I understand the coloring is used to portray drama. However, when dramatic things happen to people in real life, like the the, the coloring doesn't change, <laughs> like the lighting doesn't change around us. And so I think one of the things that makes Buffy great is that it, it forces its actors to act, which is something that, um, and a lot of like supernatural themed shows as well, rely on the plot to carry the weight and if we can say anything about the actors on Buffy is that everybody was hitting it strong. The casting is particularly perfect um, on this show. But I also think that um, there's like a lot of strong writing that uh, lends to like a really great characterization. Because um, I think there are definitely like some like weak weaker players um but uh because i think of like that singular vision of the show like it works in a lot of ways just a cohesive unit i mean even the characters that i didn't like i can't say were poorly acted um i think i i I think sometimes it's hard to differentiate between dislike of a character and bad acting but like i feel like if the character's supposed to be annoying and they are then they did their job (laughs) (laughs) Um, so let's talk about, um, the good of season one. I've already told you what I love about season one and what we know what you loved about season one. Um, let, I want to talk about what I didn't like so much. Um, the late nineties special effects were different, but at the same time, this is what made the show kind of campy for me. This is why, what it, why it is my second favorite season, because every time the special effects would show up, I would be reminded that I am watching a TV show. And it was funny and it was cute. And the special effects actually got significantly better in later seasons, but they just didn't hit the same way as the first season special effects. <laughs> Definitely. Um, whether it's budget, whether that was budget or just like the technology that was like available at the time, um, I think they did the best of like what they had. Something that I particularly, I guess, love that sort of old school visual effects uh, makeup. It's not mm-hmm. something you see a lot anymore. So I that definitely like holds like a special place in my heart. Uh, cheesy, cheesy as it as it, I guess it was. Well, you know what? That's something that I wanted to bring up too. So Buffy the Vampire Slayer might actually be the last time vampires on television or in film were actually scary. They didn't look like like when they became vampires and they were about to like tear your throat out, they looked terrifying. They didn't glitter. They didn't just come into longer teeth. They looked like monsters. And um, I feel like the vampire genre has kind of shifted to humanize vampires in a way that Buffy never did. I mean, you had Angel, a character who had a soul and that was deeply humanized. And later on in the series, Spike is kind of humanized more and more. But the the theme was that vampires are soulless monsters and they were portrayed as such. You see them and you are scared. Right, definitely. Season one, season one, I like season one. I think if I had to pick um, some iconic episodes from season one that you absolutely have to watch. Season one, episode three, The Witch, 
season one, episode four, Teacher's Pet. Um, yes. <laughs> which is really great. Uh, season one, episode seven, Angel. And season one, episode 11, uh, Out of Mind, Out of Sight. Angel and and Teacher's Pet were my absolute favorites. Um, like I said, one of the cool things about season one is that you kind of had an array of antagonists. There was not one super villain for that that season. And there was just like a new issue, a new problem in addition to vampires every right. new episode. So yeah, like if you're trying to watch a, a, like a human-sized praying mantis get her rocks off, definitely check out Teacher's Pet. <laughs> right. I think season one had, I think... If- if we, if you had to pin down like a an like a sort of big bad villain in terms of that structure, um, it's definitely like the master and like the mm-hmm. anointed one, and the anointed one I think sort of carries into like season two a bit. Right, right. Um, now they are our like primary villains. Now the reason why I didn't count them as such is because we, the audience, are aware of them, but Buffy isn't aware of them for like most of the series. And this is what one thing that differentiates season one from all the other seasons. All the other seasons, you know who the villain you're going to be dealing with for the rest of the season is. Like from Jump, Buffy knows from like the first episode. Like at least by episode five, she knows what the problem is. And she's dealing with it for the rest of the season. And mm. in this season, she was kind of oblivious to the problem, which is I, which I think made it really fun and really camp. Like you don't always know what your problems are, especially when you're like a supernatural demon slayer. You're not always going to know who your enemies are. So I really love season one for that. Now, season one ended with Buffy dying temporarily at the hands of the master. And in the few seconds that she died, a new slayer was activated, slayer named Kendra. So um, we'll talk about that when we recap season two. But what do we think of season one? Is it good, bad, or basic? Um, I definitely go with good. Um, I would say both good and basic. But the things that were basic about it are what I loved because I, I too am basic. <laughs> <laughs> like, so I really, really love season one. Like I said, it's my second favorite season. It's definitely a season that I think if they did a reboot of the show, it should remain the same frame by frame. All right. Well, there you go. Season one it's catapulting into season two. Season two is like a huge departure from season one in that it gets like a full 22 episode order. And it's, it's a pretty iconic season. I think a lot of, um, I, I love it. You want to kick it off, Em? Sure. Um, like Alex said, it's 22 episodes long, which, um, was and still is the way that WB does most of their shows. They're like super long, but it's really great because, um, at least WB back then, now CW. Yeah, now the CW. Um, it was great because at least back then they used this as a really um um as a way to establish character relationships, character personalities, and um create really great character arcs. They're not really doing that so much anymore, but season two is great because we really see our our main cast of characters. Buffy, Willow, Xander, and Angel, who was introduced last season and becomes a regular on season two, we get to see their relationships grow. Um, it was, it was, it's actually kind of amazing the way that um 
the characters change and the relationships strengthen and evolve um, from the beginning of season one to the end of season two. Right. So season two is, um, I mean, it's season two. It's really great. <laughs> that's not, uh, that sound that doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement. It really is. Um, so season two is really great for a lot of reasons. I think season two, like you really start to see like the vision of the show come into focus. Okay. Um, uh, and you sort of see the brilliance in terms of like plotting and pacing um, in narrative structure. Uh, so. So season- let's talk about some of the new characters that are introduced in season two. Kendra, the other vampire slayer who was activated during Buffy's brief death. Um, Spike and Drusilla, um, both of which become iconic characters on the series and just in the realm of sci-fi. Um, so how do we feel about these new characters and in addition to like the development of our main cast? And like you said, we're introduced first to Drew and Spike who become, or I guess are a part of our overarching villain for this season as Angel that does like a heel turn mid-season and joins them as sort of like the main antagonists. Part of like why that's so brilliant and interesting is like we're introduced to Angel like sort of in the first season. And what happens is that Angel loses his soul. What I really love about that is that um, I think there's a tendency now to like when there needs to be like when you're introducing conflict to the story, introducing conflict to these to the main characters, there's a tendency to want to turn outward and to bring in and to bring in like a slew of new people to make right. this to make um antagonists work. But instead, the show sort of turns inward, which is really really smart. Um, and finds ways. And this will be, I think, another defining thing for the show. Um, throughout all the seasons is that the show always finds new ways each seasons to revamp for for lack of a better word revamp um a uh revamp like a character that's already that we've already been introduced to and turn them into something new to push the the narrative forward like thematically season two is like very deals with like a lot of hard issues i think that are still relevant today Absolutely. And I think it's interesting to talk about that because, um, as I said before, um, um, you know, these shows are 22 episodes long and the WB or CW still has shows that are that long, but they're doing nothing to strengthen and grow their characters. And the characters are very stagnant and very stale. Um, they don't grow in either direction. They don't become better. They don't become worse. They're not really, they're tested externally, but they're not, they don't really go through any sort of internal conflict. And it's like, okay. <laughs> right. It, like an internal, among, among like, I think the, gr- the group, right. Um, right. In terms of like the relationships with each other within like the main ensemble cast. So yeah, let's talk about Spike and Drew, which like we're first introduced to in uh, also an iconic episode of season two that I would say is a uh, season two, episode three school hard yes. um, is when we first meet uh, Spike and Drew. Um, shout out to Juliet Landau who played Drusilla because she really inspired that ballerina goth look. She really brought 
coffin nails and stiletto nails to the mainstream. Um, she was doing it for all of the pretty sad girls. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Um, definitely shout out to James Marsters for making Spike such an iconic character. You really cannot think of, of the Buffy ensemble cast without thinking of that frosted hair and that long leather coat. And it's so interesting to me how they managed to portray what started off as supporting characters and what in Juliet Landau's case remained a supporting character so strongly that they're basically burned into our brains. <laughs> Absolutely. They become, for the run of the series, they they become inescapable. Even just the, I think their initial introduction is so strong. Um, the When that shot of the Sunnydale welcome sign being uh, like run over by, by the car, um, and then <laughs> he steps out and then lights a cigarette um, with that score underneath is, is, is truly perfect. <laughs> right. Um, what was a little bit less iconic, though, was the way that the show handled Kendra Young, the vampire slayer. Yeah, I didn't even know she had a last name. I'm the type So, yeah, so Kendra eventually um, dropped her last name when she started training um, with, with her watcher, which was at a very young age. But yeah, Young was her last name. Okay. And th- the character was so mishandled. Um, we have this vampire slayer, which in a lot of ways, I mean, she is all about honor and duty and doing what she has to do. Um, but other than that, her and Buffy are kind of antithetical to each other. One's black, one's white, and Buffy's very loose and relaxed, and she has a group of friends. And Kendra is very rigid and by the book and pretty much just everything alone. And somehow, this person who'd been training to be a slayer since she was a toddler is bested in season three and killed in the most disposable, disrespectful way imaginable. (laughs) Uh, she's introduced as season two, episode nine, what's my line part one. And then they, then she became like a, a, a support to the protagonist. She definitely was, was put as an adversary role to Buffy because it was very much, um, from the beginning, the show took the position that Kendra was too structured, too rigid. Right. And even when Buffy ultimately embraces that, the show disposes of Kendra in a manner that said, see, she really was too rigid and too structured and they got her killed. Right. And that happens <laughs> in season three. three. And that's, and then that, and then so Kendra's representative of something that will be like also present through the run of the show in that, like, they don't know how to write black people. I just. Right. Black people on Buffy are Buffy very, are very, very disposable. Disposable. And not only that, for the time that they're on screen, um, they're caricaturized in many ways. Kendra, played by Bianca Lawson, was for some reason written as a Jamaican girl. I mean, I don't I don't even want to say like she's Jamaican. She's like because like that accent doesn't even mean anything like her Jamaican accent is like my Russian. Like, is it Russian? Is it (laughs) some sort of like vague Eastern yeah. European. No, I feel you on like, the accent, but the show very clearly says that Kendra is supposed to be Jamaican, and that's okay. what's upsetting to me. That's upsetting. Because 
Her 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 accent was like was like run of the mill anywhere Caribbean. It could have been Jamaican. It could have been Bayesian. It could have been Trini. It, it it sounded like a fusion of all of the above um, with American accent thrown in. She <laughs> they yeah I I'm of the firm opinion that they could have just made her like from Oakland and they would have achieved like the same sort of like exactly. desire. Exactly. You don't. You barely know how to write like American black people. So why are you going to swerve three lanes over as opposed to just one by giving us one that is a Jamaican vampire slayer who was born and raised in Jamaica? Like she doesn't like they make a joke out of the fact that Kendra doesn't even know how to act on international flights. Flights, which is silly. (laughs) Like yeah, that's the and so then this is like yeah, this is like they don't they can't write black people like. They make her like, I guess, like she was raised in the jungle when it's like, or like, or like they tried to. Jamaica's not even that big. You're going to walk out of the jungle eventually. Eventually. (laughs) Like, or they, they had this idea of how I guess like Caribbean people are. That's just really offensive. It is. It's it's just offensive. And And it was unnecessary. You could, like I said, just make her from Oakland. You'll get the same sort of exoticism honestly <laughs> like she's they're still gonna be like oh who's this person that listens to like hip-hop music and um where's lots of i don't know whatever like okay Ken, kendra's fits were were fly as fuck and her hair was fly as fuck so her hair was um, doing it, like her hair was doing it like she looked like like i if nothing else she dressed like a black girl in the late nineties, <laughs> like small favors, but she wasn't dressing like Drusilla or Buffy, which would have looked very off on her. Um, especially with the way that, um, Kendra wore her hair. Um, like I like the fact that Kendra had her own style and kind of, um, stood apart from the rest of the cast in that way, because for me, it highlighted how overwhelmingly white the show was. Right. Um, now let's talk about a character that was done super duper well and continue to actually um, stay on the trajectory of being like um, what Alex and I think is the most emotionally mature um, and uh, emotionally intelligent boyfriend love interest character that's ever been on the show. And that is David Osborne, AKA Oz, Oz. first and only boyfriend to Willow. Uh, yeah. So Oz comes in, oh my gosh, I had it written down and I don't and now I don't have it it's um it's hot like season oh yeah season two episode six Halloween is when we're first introduced to Oz and it's very short we just see him sort of we see him seeing Willow right um, in his car and Willow sort of walks by and it's a it's a very like Claire Danes Leo DiCaprio sort of moment um Mm -hmm another late nineties reference, uh, uh, <laughs> R and J moment and wonderful. And that's, that's the first time we, we Wait, meet him. Um, actually, I think he saw her before that when he was performing at the bronze and she was wearing some costume. No, that's later. That's like, oh, that's okay. You're right. Season. Now, when he sees her in the car, does she see him as well? No. All right. Yeah, I remember this, the episode when he's seeing her walking in front of the car. And it's interesting because I had to rewatch the series in order to refresh myself for this um, podcast. 
But that was that one scene was the one scene that was burned into my brain. I even remember what what Willow was wearing before I watched the episode. And as she's walking in front of the car, I remember thinking now and then as a teenager, when I first watched the show, that that was the first time I had ever seen Willow look sexy. That's probably the only time. Yeah, because I think in Halloween, the whole point is like Willow's feeling uncomfortable like because it's halloween right so and vampires Mm -hmm. don't do things during halloween like that's what they keep saying that like demons sort of like lay low and uh willow was like sort of trying to like rebel against um her sort of nature i guess so she kind of gets into this like uh like you know really sexy outfit and then she can't go through with it and buffy sort of encourages her but she can't go through with it so she decides to put on um like a big like sheet and like she writes goes boo. a ghost. Yeah, and goes <laughs> as a ghost and writes boo on it and then pokes like, you know, the eye holes out of it. And so by the end of the episode, she sort of when everybody turns back, um when everything goes right side up again, she mm-hmm. like sort of throws it off and then like walks like confidently like back to her house or wherever she's going right right and then that's and it's during that walk that like he sees her he stops at a stoplight and he sees her right um it's interesting with willow because willow is a character that i knew early on there was a lot going on beneath the surface but um her character was one that was marked with a lot of um anxiety and self-consciousness for about half of the series and she doesn't really come into her own and become a more confident person until the latter half of the series. And her character arc is one of the most impressive to watch for the duration of the show. I think. That's true. I agree with that. Um, there, she struggles in a lot of ways. I think, yeah, that's true. Like to herself. And I think it's that, that very, when the show's ending that she really just sort of is, good right and i feel like a big shout out to allison hannigan um i really really loved the 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 nuance that she gave to willow because as willow grows and becomes more confident even her speech patterns change like it it, there's no more like nervousness and jitteriness and everything she says Mm -hmm. it's more confident and it's more calm and we can see that growth and i definitely love the chemistry between her and seth green who plays oz um fun trivia they were in the movie um i think my stepmother is an alien when they were both like 12 or 13 years old and they were love interest in that movie and i had actually seen that movie like the week before Oz showed up on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> so mm-hmm. in my third, my like 13 year old mind was like, they're meant to be together. <laughs> <laughs> but I love their chemistry as a couple. And I think that was probably one of the, the um, most grounded relationships between like romantic relationships on the show. Um Like, indisputably, a lot of these relationships were toxic as hell. That's true. Um, Oz is great. He's, he's a, he's a king among men. Um, he's, he has emotional intelligence and exercises, exercises it. And we shouldn't have to 
for that but it's so rare to see and I still I'm still waiting for it with some of these newer shows that's true (laughs) there's a lot of male characters that aren't written like that and so yeah it's funny I was actually thinking about what I know that we say that like Angel is like very middle of the road but his character works a lot and I was trying to think about like why does Angel like work in a way that like like, why does, like, that character work so well? And, you know, I finally put my finger on it. It's because he's in the traditional sort of, like, girl role. Like, quote-unquote girl role. Like, within the series. Like, that archetype of, like, the girlfriend. He, like, occupies it. And that's why he works so well. Um, right, because she's a superior and he's, like, in a, a, a position of supporting her and her goals and her efforts. Right, as, like, in the narrative. So you have, for example, What's My Line Part 1 and Part 2 in Season 2. Uh, that's episodes, like, 9 and 10. You know, Angel is the damsel in distress. He's the one that, you know, has to be rescued and he's the yes. one that has to... Um, And he's always, and then when you sort of look at his interactions, I think throughout before the heel turn, um, he's very like a supportive, like he is, he's a super supportive. He's always like reassuring Buffy and he's always like, everything's going to be okay. And like, he's always helping her. He definitely like takes the backseat to her like main protagonist. And I think that's why he works so well. I think this is also why a lot of girls love Angel. Now, I have my my issues with Angel as a love interest for Buffy, but I get why people, um, why a lot of women stand him so hard, because I feel like a lot of people want that type of behavior from their relationships. I think a lot of um, cishet women go into relationships understanding that that if they are in love with someone and they also are in love with a dream or an ideal or a job, something must be sacrificed and it's probably going to be the thing that they want, not the person. Right. And like I said, that's, that's like his thing. So like whenever Buffy's like feeling insecure, like, you know, he reassures her whenever, um, like in Halloween, uh, Halloween episode six, um, I think Buffy like attempts to sort of like change herself uh, to uh, to be with him or I guess to like please him. And he's sort of like, no, like I like you for you. And, you know, every and then every time she needs help or like help slaying, like, you know, he's sort of like her teammate. Um, yeah, anytime. she was talking to a Sandy D from Greece, and he's like, "No, girl, you don't need to change for me." Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's like, "Yeah." Every time, you know, he's definitely like the, you know, he's like a he's a point of like like level headedness, sort of, until um, I think until like probably the two most iconic episodes of this series. Um, surprise uh episode 13 and episode 14 surprise and innocence you guys when this is on i still remember the promo for this Girl, it was like a two, me and my sister were so ready it was a two <laughs> night episode it was like a two, it was a two night episode it was such a big deal like <laughs> you had a two-parter on the wb um and this is the episode where like 
finally have sex. And, uh, and then this amazing thing, amazing and horrifying thing happens. And after they have sex for the first time, uh, he turns into like Angel loses his soul and he becomes like this sort of like evil soulless monster. Um, and he becomes the antagonist for the rest of the season, uh, along with Spike and Drew. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, it is, it is amazing. It's heart wrenching. It's amazing. It's heart wrenching. It's devastating. It's all the things. It's all, well, the, it's all some, the good things. Well, let's get some backstory to that. So okay. um, Angel doesn't become this monster as much as he reverts to this monster. So Angelus was the person he was before he was cursed with the soul. And so he kind of just slips back into that position when he loses his soul again. And he becomes that leader of that group of vampires. Back when he was had been a vampire before, he was leader of that pack. And this, what I love about this season that is that it really highlights the relationship that Drusilla and Spike and Angel had. And in a lot of ways, we'll always have where Angel is the leader. They were kind of rudderless and aimless when he had a soul. And then when he lost the soul again, it was just like old times. There was a lot of nostalgia there, but everyone knows at the end of the day, they couldn't get anything accomplished without him. So he was like the leader of that group of vampires that were essentially stalking and harassing and threatening Buffy and her friends once he lost his soul again. And mm. it's it was the worst type of situation for Buffy because it is every girl's worst nightmare to sleep with a guy and find out that he's a completely different person, which is what Angel became when he reverted to Angela's. He turns and uh, it and he's an antagonist for the rest of the season, even so much, even to the point of bringing forth um, the apocalypse or attempting to. Right. So that's a, the the major things that happen this season are the fact that Angel loses a soul that he was cursed with and reverts to Angelus and becomes an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, Xander and Willow enter into relationships with Cordelia and Oz, respectfully. And Buffy's mom finds out that what is told by Buffy finally that she is a slayer. A slayer. <laughs> Which and, is uh interesting because the way they the way it's written it, it feels like um like she's coming out. So uh I guess somewhere around there we were still like aware, I guess, of, of you know, gay rights and Right. The show show does this in later seasons as well, when they're clearly talking about one thing and they use another thing as a metaphor. So like, we're not going to have a gay character. We're just going to frame this whole coming out to your mom as a slayer as like in the same manner as a person coming out to their parents, even though your parents should have definitely known from all the ripped clothing in your, you know, your closet and all the blood stains on your clothes when she's doing laundry. (laughs) Right. There needs to be a coming out, apparently. Right. It's definitely like an allegory to that. So it's it's cool to like have like a show that like is sort of doing all of these things at once. Too bad. They're just really bad at, you know, race. Um, So if I had to pick uh, some iconic season episodes from the season, um, Gen Z that you absolutely have to watch without going through all of them. uh, School Hard. Episode two, uh, season two, episode three, School Hard. 
um, is definitely one. What's My Line, episode nine. What's My Line, part two, episode 10. Episode 13, Surprise, episode 14, Innocence. And then uh, Becoming, part, episode 21, part one. And then Becoming, part two, episode 22. Mm-hmm. So, um, like Alex said, Angelus attempted to bring up about the apocalypse in this season. And even though he gets his soul back at the very end of the season, she still got to kill him anyway. She does. She still <laughs> kills him. She sends him to hell, which I like for a lot of reasons. I like one, he has to suffer the actions of his consequences, even though it technically wasn't him. Um, It's still like, you've got to, you got to pay the 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 toll, which I think is is very is a very valuable thing that we don't do anymore or like we don't really mm-hmm. show anymore. We also I also like it for the, I think for the reason that you stated that she puts her duty over sort of like love. Right. And her responsibilities. Now here's the thing. I I think Buffy is a character that does well as a single person because she's really never had a partner that was either a sustainable um, long-term relationship or a healthy non-toxic ones. Her her big love interest on the show were Angel, who again falls in that unsustainable category because old boy couldn't even take her out to brunch. And then later Riley. Star lovers. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. I don't want Buffy to be alone. However, I love the fact that the show wasn't all, I know you did this horrible thing, but I'm going to make excuses for you because you didn't have a soul. It's like, nah, you've got to take this L. I love you, but I need to handle this. And I'm seeing more and more is where you have this person, this person that did terrible, awful, you know, unforgivable things. And this person's like, well, I love you anyway, and I'm just going to love you until you start acting better. And my love will save you and my love will cure you. Right. Because, and I guess like, uh, just like we're, we're talking about these things because like fantasy shows are definitely like used as allegories for like the real world. Like Buffy absolutely does that. Like the demons and vampires are allegories for like real life issues and things that happen. And Buffy, like, has to fight that evil as, like, a young woman. I think that's just, we're definitely, like, thinking about that place and, and coming, at, coming at it from that mm-hmm. in the metaphorical sense. Absolutely. And what I love about this situation and how she had to kill Angel and save the world and do what she had to do is that um, she wasn't putting her love interest ahead of everyone else, which is also something that's really popular to do in current fantasy in some love conquers all move. Like if I choose a person I love, then screw everyone else. But I also love the fact that this could be seen almost as a portrayal for um, toxicity and relationships and growth. Like you can acknowledge that someone you loved is growing and has changed, which is what Buffy does when she realizes that Angel has his soul back, but still be like, I still need to move on from this situation. You've got it. Or you've got to still like, do this this period of like you know being in hell because <laughs> right angel gets sent to hell and he's exactly stays, and he stays there for a period he absolutely has to suffer the consequences of his actions and it doesn't matter if you love him or not it really doesn't and i don't and the thing is buffy can do this and the way the writing on this episode well both episodes of becoming um are so stellar because we, her love for Angel is absolutely never in doubt. 
Right. We can't say, well, she saved him at last time, but that's because she doesn't love him anymore. No, it's very clear she's still in love with him. That's not right. the point. That's not the point. <laughs> that's true. And like, um, I actually really love the episodes where he's Angelus for that reason because it's very clear she sees Angelus Girl, as a threat that he is. She sees him as a threat that he that that he is, and she still loves Angel, but she's able to compartmentalize that this person he is right now is not who I need. I fell in love with, and I need to distance myself from him because he's a danger. <laughs> like, it frames that sort of those feelings in a in a positive way of like dealing with, with that kind of a situation. So there are two things about Angelus, AKA evil angel that I think were portrayed really well, but that kind of slip under the radar. The first is that, as we say, um, Buffy hates Angelus, but loves Angel and realizes that they are the same person and compartmentalizes that fact. It's not a situation where she fell in love with him at his very worst and was trying to love him into a better person. And that's very, very, very important to note. The person she fell in love with was good. Like it's not one of those shows where she, you take someone who is vile and evil and then you just love them into something better. Cause um, that's so not real. I, it's not real. And it, 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 it's a very toxic portrayal of the heroine because how broken do you have to be to fall in love with someone like Angelus in the first place? Right. Um, she does. She never fell in love with Angela. She fell in love with Angel. And the second thing that's done well is that when he's Angelus and he starts terrorizing her, he also terrorizes her friends and family. This is important because this is how real stalkers behave in real life. <laughs> like you're not the only person in danger. Everyone in your network is in danger. And the stalker and the sociopath is counting on you to feel guilty whenever they hurt someone you care about and see it as your fault for rejecting them, for not wanting to see them, for not giving them access to you. And I thought that portrayal was really, really good. Um, the closest thing I'd seen to a, a portray, portray that good was um, Mark Wahlberg's character, David, in the movie Fear, who was also that predatory, abusive stalker boyfriend who refused to be dumped, basically. <laughs> um, I definitely love the way the show portrayed stalking and harassment as more than just a single person issue mm, okay that's interesting that's true because i never thought about that and like i like that you did um yeah and it's horrible like when he and it, oh gosh it's horrible uh when jenny calendar that's giles's girlfriend giles gets a girlfriend for like the first time ever um mm-hmm. not the first time ever but the first time in the show and, <laughs> the first time that counts <laughs> uh, first time and uh angel murders her in like a really sadistic really horrifying way um and you know he goes which by the way i will say like the show does it so well because like it they build the tent like they really do a masterful job in like building this tension um when it comes to like angelus's actions uh and what he's gonna do next um they do make him very unpredictable and uh, cause when, cause then when Angel can like Angelus, uh, confronts Buffy's mom, like, you don't know what's going to happen if he's going to like do something crazy or like if he's just going to like be weird, which she does in an occasion. So it's very, it's, it's great. Um, it's, it's really masterful. Uh, yikes. Um, 
because it's so scary. Um, and that's something that I think the show in general is just is really great at building tension, like really and really like raising the stakes, um, in in the plot and the narrative, because uh, mm-hmm. without it ever feeling sort of cheap, which I think the the direct descendants of this show, uh, of of this show, uh, tend to do. Yeah, they kind of missed the mark. And I think there is, like I said, we both agree that Buffy doesn't know what to do with Black people. But when it comes to the nuance of interpersonal relationships, um, they really hit the mark. And I really love the um, Angel's, uh, uh, David Boreanaz's portrayal of Angelus even more than I love his portrayal of Angel. Mm. Angel, being a good guy, was also a very predictable guy. Um, Angelus being not only a bad guy, but a sociopath was very, very unpredictable. Char- and he's very charismatic. Right. And I think that's something to note as well. Like abusive people can be charming. In fact, most of the time they are. Mm-hmm. Like it's not one of those things where abuser equals like, you know, socially awkward and ugly. That's not it at all. Um, And I I really love his portrayal of that character. I really felt him as an actor in that role. I feel like Angelus was a more difficult portrayal. Um, I I feel like it would take so much more work, Um, especially after having played Angel for like, you know, a total of one season because he doesn't become Angelus till halfway through season three or season two. So for all of season one and half of season, you know, um, two, he is this great you know, upstanding, sensitive guy. And then he like, like snap becomes a monster. Like that is a real masterclass. He's, he does it really well. Um, so season two, good, bad, or basic. Season two was fantastic. Um, definitely good. And it is my all time favorite season of Buffy. Awesome. Um, all right. So season three. So wait, what about you? Do you think it was good? Oh, or I think it's, no, I think it's good. I think it's excellent. I think it's like, I think I'm of the opinion that season two and season three are like the iconic seasons of the show. I agree with that. I definitely I, agree with that. I feel like if you don't watch any other seasons of Buffy, you will get the gist with seasons two and three. Season three. <laughs> yeah. I think if you don't ever like, cause it's a lot to commit to as a show. It's, it's, like what seven seasons if you don't watch any other seasons i think you can get the full scope of like why it's so why people are like so crazy about it by just going through season two and season three i don't right so instead of just watching what 144 character show episodes you can just watch 44 44 yeah (laughs) i think and i think you get the basic basic gist of it all um so season three uh, kicks off. Buffy has like left Sunnydale because she's, you know, killed her boyfriend. So she's sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's sort of living off the grid in uh, Los Angeles. We we like we're saying it's Oakland with no black people. It's somewhere. Um, yeah, it's somewhere like L.A. adjacent. It, L.A. adjacent. Yeah. Um, because uh, it's definitely Skid Row ish. Yeah, um, that that much is very clear. It's, it's <laughs> she's, she's she's not living the high life. She's not living the high life. Um, and she's I guess trying to get away from being the Slayer since um it's it's already cost her so much and cost her 
the people, a lot of people that she's loved and people she's respected. And so she's trying to, I think, find a way, uh, a way out, a way gone. Right. Because, um, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I'm such a bum. Kendra does die later on in that season. I don't know why I keep thinking she died in season Yeah. Four. Yeah. She, she does. She dies in, in, um. Season two. She, yeah, she dies in season two. Um, Drusilla killed Kendra in season two. Like I said, in the most disrespectful, disposable way ever. Um, she kind of like hypnotizes her and slits her throat. And this is after Kendra loaned Buffy her lucky stake. Yeah, it's after they've sort of formed, uh, forged a, a relationship, a friendship with each other. Um, she she dies. Uh, and yeah, lots of... yeah, And so... Buffy's lost some people. She's lost Kendra. Uh, Jenny Callender's dead. Um, who else? Oh, uh, I think um, like Willow like was hurt. So you know they're mm-hmm. they're reeling from their. And then Angel, she had to send Angel to hell. So she's sort of she's she's in some grief. She's right, trying to work through some grief. So I actually want to backtrack on that a little bit. Buffy's leaving of Sunnydale at the end of season two was actually one of the most iconic scenes of the show. It's also another one of those scenes that I remembered very, very clearly. And it's the reason it's because of the sensitivity lent to the characters. Now, we talked about plot and pacing and how throughout Buffy, we really get a chance for things to sink in. The audience is not forced to, like, um, be introduced to something or a, like a concept or a person and then quickly recover from it. Like we are allowed to like feel things deeply and feel for our characters. So we see Buffy on that bus about to leave. Angel is dead and he was like her great love. Willow is hurt. Miss Calendar is dead. And more than her relationship with Jenny is Giles's relationship with Jenny and how much it hurts her because Giles is very much like a father figure for Buffy. And so when she leaves, like the audience like is of two minds like we know she shouldn't be leaving but we get it because the feelings are so just as intense for us as they are for her everything is hitting us with the same weight that they're hitting her and i think that was so beautifully done it wasn't just it wasn't just a string of things that have been thrown at her in the last two episodes it was a compilation of all the heartache she's gone through in this season settling on her shoulders that she's on that bus and she's making the decision to leave that's why season three's opening is so great because we are still very very fresh in this wound and we want to know how buffy's going to dig herself out of this heartbreak right that's true that's very very true and i mean i think even the opening the opening shot of season three is um buffy is i think it's like a or one of the opening scenes, it's not the opening scene, but one of the opening scenes is Buffy sort of um, on a beach, like at sunrise. And she's sort of like, it's a dream and she's sort of uh, remembering Angel. So we feel all these things. We know that like all these things are sort of like weighing on her pretty deep. Right. And it's, I love that scene as well. Because it's not like, oh, season three, let's forget he ever existed, which a lot of shows, I'm not going to name no names, have been doing that a lot. 
Like, not even the next season. The next episode, we're supposed to be over some shit already. That's true. <laughs> we don't, they don't let things, like, be like, oh, this person. So then, so then, like, when you kill characters, it doesn't, you don't, as an audience member, you don't really care. Because, like, right. they, and they don't like, sit with it. Right. And it's like, can I get a tissue? Can I get a moment? <laughs> right. And like, that's, I- yeah. And that's something that Buffy, I think, once again, throughout the run of the show, will do so, 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 so well is like really remembering its characters, remembering their histories, and then like, uh, and how, like, in the relationships with people that are gone, um, it remembers them very well and it will still sort of like resonate. And you'll see, like, resonate, it'll resonate with um, the characters still on the show. And so you really do get the sense that like these people were important, unless your name is Kendra, then like you are forgotten. I'm sorry. Girl, I mean, like, I mean, I can't argue facts. (laughs) Listen, Um, it's so upsetting. But uh, yeah, season three. Um, she's tossed in to. She's trying to, I guess, live. Um, she's away, and you know, Sunnydale turns without her. Um, but her friends are definitely her friends, and Giles and everyone are definitely thinking about her, and so she. Eventually, uh, in L.A., she confronts uh, more demons that are sort of picking on uh, vulnerable populations, uh, people who are homeless and who are sort of down on their luck and struggling. Looking back at it now, I wonder if it's like a metaphor for the science for Scientology. <laughs> um, uh, low key, it, low it key, because like, I never I never heard of Scientology back then. But the more I know about it, the more I think of that episode. I roll oh, right, and low key, <laughs> I wonder if it's about like Scientology. But um, uh, but but we might real- have to edit this out, girl, because I don't want them to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> That's so real. Um, <laughs> uh, but um. Buffy is then confronted by demons, like I said, who are picking off a people in the population. And she realizes that it doesn't matter where she is. She can't run away from her slayer duties. That'll always be a part of her. Um, it's a part of her. It's who she is. It's intrinsic um, to her to help people and to right. protect people, to protect those most vulnerable around her. So she eventually gets through it puts on her big girl panties and goes back to Sunnydale to... It's interesting... Oh, go ahead. What were you saying? Oh, no, sorry. To fight the hell mouth. It's interesting because for me in that first, uh, that opening episode, um, you know, she's working as a waitress and like guys are gropey and handsy, but she doesn't fight them off. It's like, if I'm not going to be a slayer, I'm not going to use my slayer strength either. And I feel like that very, very brief time... We learn a lot about Buffy's character. Like, she's not the type of person to just, like, want all of the perks and all of the privileges, but none of the responsibilities. That's And I thought that was interesting. I thought that was really interesting where she could clearly kick these guys' ass, but she chose not to because she's like, I'm not the Slayer anymore. I'm just, you know, a skinny 17-year-old girl. (laughs) Right. So, you know, she was just living her life and putting her head down. And it wasn't until she saw other people in danger um, from supernatural elements that she decided to, um, you know, get back into her duty. So it's very clear being the slayer for her is not a thing that she does because um, she wants it to be her identity or she wants the accolades. She feels compelled to help. 
Exactly. So um, I really appreciated that episode for that reason. Uh, also, so I guess the the big bad of this season is the mayor, one of the greatest, I think, villains in. He's the uh, greatest for me. I'll be honest with you. He's, he's <laughs> definitely like one of my favorite villains. Um. Uh. Of 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 a of a TV show. I'm definitely into into him. He's really great. And we also meet Faith, uh, who uh, the other Slayer that is called after Kendra. Yes. Um, Faith is definitely, I think, representative of like Buffy's sort of like shadow twin, like a person that Buffy could have become. I absolutely agree. Under different circumstances. Um, Faith is great um, because, like you said, she is that shadow of Buffy. Um, what well, one thing? One thing I love. Well, one of the many things I love about Faith is how well her character is written. Not just her character arc, which I think was really beautiful, because because Faith has hit every extreme and back again. But the way the character was conceptualized from the very beginning as this person who grew up alone, abandoned, went through various traumas, and her character is a reflection of that. She has a lot of insecurities that are masked with bravado. Um, She desperately wants to belong, but she feels a lot of insecurities with certain groups of people. Um, And I just love the fact that Faith is probably the only woman that's ever been on the show who is portrayed as being sexy. Yeah. And, and in a, in sexy, in a way that, um, I think just, just works. Uh, she's, it's all sort of, she's the first female character, I think, because the show deals with sex. It just deals with sex, like an innuendo. Um, right. There's lots of innuendo on Buffy in like season one and season two. Um, she's probably the first like female character that's like, but explicit. She's like, oh, like I get hungry and horny, and um, she's like, have you like ever screwed Xander? She's very explicit, and it works for her, and it's great, and it's good to have that sort of um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that like uh, other representation of like I think a. Uh, female like sexuality and being right right I think a lot of times when we talk about female protagonists it is set up in a way that even if they have sex lives we never ever ever talk about it um or even a character like Buffy who we see has sex and then like she is like for lack of a better term punished (laughs) for it right um one of the great things about Faith as well um, I mean, the show has a lot of beautiful women, but like I said, she's like the only one that's supposed to be sexy. It's the fact that Faith doesn't dress that differently than the other characters at all. She, she doesn't not. dress in a manner that's supposed to be, hey, I'm sexy. Instead of relying on costuming, um, Eliza, Eliza Dushku actually had to act and give a, a sexy personality to this character. Right. Um, yeah. Faith was great for me, too, um, because I feel like in a lot of ways, Faith shook up Buffy in in a way that she needed to be shaken up. Similar to how they tried to portray Buffy and Kendra's relationship, like 
oh, she's going to shake up Kendra. She's going to make her a little bit more rigid. I think Faith was what Buffy needed for a very, very short amount of time because it was like for the first time she had a Slayer friend, not just a friend, but a friend who knew exactly what her life was like being a Slayer. Right. And I think, yeah, and the show acknowledges that. I think as like Buffy and Faith get closer, I think it even becomes sort of like a wedge between um, Buffy and Willow in in some sense uh, that Mm -hmm. um, Buffy just hangs out with Faith all all the time these days. Um, I don't know. Faith is really great. She's a great character. She becomes like a great adversary later on. she's 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 the goat she she's she's just yeah she's done the shadow twin and it works so so um fairly early on in the series um you know buffy kind of checks faith a little bit for kind of reckless behavior and faith accidentally kills a person and i this is like the last straw the breaking point for her mentally and in seeking solace and trying to heal from what she's done, she chooses the most toxic path, which is right into the arms of Mayor Richard Wilkins. Mm. And her relationship with him is absolutely like a perversion of Buffy's relationship with Giles, like that father figure um, type of relationship, except he's the worst type of person. And he's preying on all of her vulnerabilities and all of her insecurities and using her strength for his own ends real and it sort of real 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 and it and it continues like this uh for the rest of season three in fact we don't really get a sort of reformed faith until um uh angel um really on angel's show it's when she sort of breaks down and all these sort of things that you're mentioning like her insecurities and her stuff sort of come to the forefront and then and then they work through it her and angel friends right and it's interesting like i said that this character is allowed to grow now we've had care we've had a character before angel go from angel to angelus back to angel but faith is very much a human being things that she's going through are not a matter of soul no soul it's it's literally just a matter of life experience and the choices that she has made and so her character is really 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 well done and the work that you know the trauma that she endured to be the person that she is and the work she had to do to come back to a place where she was someone that she could respect again right right um and then what else happens so oh yeah angel comes back from hell in season three he comes back a uh, season in episode four Beauty and the Beasts, and it's, um, it's sketch. Uh, he, he's sketch at first, but, um, it all sort of evens out later on. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, which is actually just, I would say is an, is an iconic episode for the sole purpose of the fact that I think it, it's a very after school specialty episode. There is like an <laughs> abusive relationship in like the plot line i think the narrative of that of that episode and of like how do you leave an abusive relationship and like you know they they do they talk about it and deal with it and sadly the girl like she doesn't make it but i guess it, it shows the dangers 
I suppose that's, that's right. its purpose. Yeah, yeah, I think that it was. Um, I really did enjoy Angel coming back to Buffy before the spinoff. And season three of Buffy is the last season of 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 the show before the spinoff of Angel. So um, Buffy season four and Angel season one run um, together at parallel the same time. together. Yeah, yeah, and it was really really interesting. Um, a couple key characters are introduced in season three of Buffy. There is Wesley who becomes a watcher for Faith and Buffy and goes on to be in the supporting cast of Angel. And there's Anya who goes on to be the supporting cast of of Buffy. She is a former demon, current mortal, and she becomes part of like the little Scooby gang. Right. Her episodes are actually um, that she shows up in are, are actually really wonderful and, and great. Um, she comes in during, uh, I want to say, The Wish, episode season nine, like season nine, not season nine, my gosh, episode nine, <laughs> season three, episode nine. And she's also in Doppelgangland, season three, episode 16. Um, if I had to pick some iconic episodes from season three, this is actually really hard because I feel like there are so many. Um, I will say... I'll do uh, episode eight, Lover's Walk, um, episode nine, The Wish, episode 12, Helpless is a really, really good one. Um, episode 16, Doppelgangland. I love that one. Yeah. And then graduate and then graduation day, part one and part two, episode 21 and episode 22. Yeah, um, I really love one of the things that Buffy does very well, with the exception of one season. And we'll talk about that in part two of the Buffy podcast is that the season finales are usually epic. Like I've rem- I remember every single finale, even the one or two that I didn't like. Like it was always with a bang. Um, and I think that this is something that they did that other shows try to do every single episode like uh like a breakneck pace and give mm-hmm. you a cliffhanger so that you'll tune in next week but whereas buffy gave us a slow steady pace with good action and good dialogue but really great character development and then gave us that cliffhanger at the season finale to tide us over until the next season that's true um yeah sort of that's true like i think the Cause I think, um, cause Buffy is like a sort of closed episodic. So each episode sort of gives you like the ending is like a little thing to, there's like little stuff to sort of bring you over into next week. But I think that is like a problem. I think with current narratives is that they try to do like a, like a season finale cliffhanger each episode, which I can, which can get like really hard. Um, it feels a I, bit exploitative and it, and it can and be a little bit draining to watch. Yeah. <laughs> it's draining and it's, it's exploitative, I think, in a lot of ways. And I don't think it gives you, I don't think it allows you to really build your, your, your narrative in a way that like is, is serving your entire series or your entire season in the way that, that you need it to. Right. And the big question here is, when do your characters get a break? It's very important to note in Buffy that even when what like things are going on, there isn't a new dilemma 
like a new large dilemma presented every single episode. Like I'm, I'm working through this thing. And once I finish working through this thing, then I'm going to work through the next thing. It's not like a pile on your character, give them constant conflict and constant anxiety every single moment. <laughs> right. Um, so I really, really love season three. Season three is my third favorite. And I agree with Alex that season two and three are everything that you need to know about the characters of Buffy on the whole. Um, and how the show is run and what the show's about. Right. Um, I think any other thing. Oh yeah. So no, that's it. So I definitely feel like season three is, is good. It's just, it's solid good. What about what about you? Same. I think seasons two and three are indisputably good. Like there's nothing I would change about them at all. Um, and I think that the new characters that are introduced, and I will say this, do serve a purpose long term. They're not just like filler people, which I really respect. True, true. I think that's one of the best parts is that like everyone like in that ensemble cast is is um knit like very purposeful and i think is used well and and has like a purpose um season four season four okay so we're at the tail end of our podcast now um as we said before seasons five through six through seven five through seven will be reviewed in our next episode. Now, season four, um, it's not in my top three, but it's right up there. Um, I okay. think I think seasons one through four on the whole were the very best that Buffy had to offer. And the only reason number four is not in my top, top of my list is simply because all of those first four seasons were so strong. Mm. Um, this was the first season of Buffy that ran um, um, parallel with Ain- the first season of Angel. Right. Angel's and so gone. Angel's gone. Um, so that's a huge shift. And then Willow, Buffy, Xander, and Oz are all at UC Sunnydale. And we kind of see how like how their relationships kind of shift and how they grow closer together and further apart as they're trying to adjust to college life. And we also meet Buffy's um, second love interest, second and last, I think, but love interest on the series, um, Riley Finn, a member of the initiative. We also explore Willow's first, um, and I think last relationship with a woman via Tara, who is an amazing supporting character as well. So let's jump into it. Okay. I'll say that like season four leaves me cold, but only because I think my own prejudice and bias is like, like, I have, like, my own prejudice and bias against, like, things that have to do with, like, the American military industrial complex. And so, therefore, like, the initiative is just, like, ugh, like, to me. (laughs) Okay, two things about that. Number one, I agree, and I also have that bias. And number two, it's a podcast. We're here to be biased. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) It's like, ugh, I just, like, it's whatever. It's whatever. the initiative was clearly a means of infusing a little bit of patriotic pride and tradition and Americanism into Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, it was it was actually done pretty well, but Riley Finn, Buffy's love interest on the series, and just pretty much everything the initiative stand for 
work very um like like to use Alex's phrase kind of left me cold because I just don't trust white dudes with guns. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and yeah, just yeah, all of those things. Um, and not only that, well, I will say it was cool in the sense of like I like that the show sort of reinforced that like Buffy. Like, the show took the position that, like, Buffy doesn't, like, fuck with guns. And then Buffy, the character herself, like, doesn't really deep fuck with guns. And I, like, it was, it's satisfying to me because the show is, like, definitely, like, an action show. Um, It loves action. There are lots of fight sequences. Um, But in that, it sort of never turned to, like, like, guns as, like, something that, you know, any of the characters like really did. Um, guns were like primitive and like lame, and uh, it was cooler to like stake someone or like to learn taekwondo, I guess. <laughs> um, or, right. or, like I'm gonna learn hand to hand combat. <laughs> like yeah, it's like if if you know if, if the kids are watching it, it encourage kids to like go learn like a martial art instead of like pick up a gun, which is always cool. So. Right. Um, the thing about Riley that, that stood out for me and still stands out for me is I feel like in a lot of ways, Riley is kind of the archetype of like, almost like a caricature of, of what we are supposed to think of when someone says all American red blooded man. Oh, I definitely think, yeah, that was like the, I'm sure that was like definitely like his purpose. Like, like he's tall. He's got like a nice jawline. He holds a gun. He wears a uniform. He's traditional and he follows orders. <laughs> it's real. Yeah. So Riley was that guy. So seeing him with Buffy as a love interest was first of all, I that took an amazing amount of writing for me to believe it. Like I eventually did believe that she was into Riley, but it took a lot. I know it's 100% because the writers and the actors took me there because on paper, it just doesn't work. Like if you, if I say, Oh, if I put Buffy's personality and Riley's personality side by side, it wouldn't appear to that it would ever work, but it did for a while. That's true. They're definitely, I guess it works in the sense that like, it's a definite like opposites attract situation. And I guess since her like previous boyfriend was like her sworn mortal enemy, like it makes sense that she's like still into people that aren't quite right for her. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that, um, Buffy, I mean, Riley was a very quote unquote normal and they had some relation relationship issues this was Buffy's most normal relationship. Um, Like despite how opposite they were and the things that eventually led to their breakup, it was kind of good seeing Buffy in a relationship where she didn't, you know, they could go outside during the, the, when the sun was out and she didn't have to worry about his soul or lack thereof. And I feel like despite all of the drama he had surrounding him, for her, it was probably a relief to be with someone like him. Exactly. Um, other things. Uh, so the big bad, I guess, in season four is Adam, like the initiative experiment that goes wrong. Um, also, once again, the show cannot write black people. Forrest, is a, who's like one of Riley's friends, is like the worst written 
like blackmail, like in the history of like horribly written blackmails. I just, it's so unfortunate, the whole thing. But. So a fun fact, I had completely forgotten about Forrest until I rewatched the show. And then I remembered why I might have pushed him out of my mind. Right? Like I blocked <laughs> it for a reason. It's so terrible. Why well, I, I really wasn't trying to go back there at all, but I could have done without Forrest. Like if they ever rebooted this show, I would become okay with not not only them leaving out force, but the initiative as a whole. Yeah, I would like be. I mean, I get the initiative and I get the plot of it, and I guess like that's interesting in another in in a sense. But ugh, like I said, it just ugh. yeah, it was it was. It left much to be desired. Let me just say that. Um, Now, one of the issues with Riley and Buffy is like we we both said, it's a very opposite to track situation. And Riley, he wasn't ready for all of this. Like, he wasn't ready for a woman like Buffy. He wants someone strong and somewhat smart, but not as strong and not as smart as him. And this is, this is important because this is, this is, in that respect, it was, almost it was like it was the opposite of the relationship that she had with angel who encouraged her to be strong and independent riley needed a a little woman to be up under him and buffy's not about that life right he riley was always supportive like but to like a point and riley sort of loved to make everything about him and like his sort of like insecurity about their relationship and it was just it was it was a lot but i also get why like Buffy would want to be with someone like Riley because, like, Riley's kind of dumb, and I can understand her, like, really needing that, like, post-Angel, just to be with someone who, like, wasn't that smart. Yeah, so I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be nice about it and just say that Riley was very simple. (laughs) (laughs) He was a simple man in a complicated world, and she, that was, like, her little, her little oasis, her little sigh of relief. Now, um, the situation with with Riley is that, um, um, in a lot of ways, he kind of mirrored her best friend Xander. Xander was not buff, and Xander was not strong, and Xander was not in the military. But Xander did love to make everything about him, and Xander was very insecure in his relationships with women to the point of sabotaging those relationships. And in that respect, he and Riley were a lot of light. And I really love it on one particular episode where she finds out that Riley has a kink of letting vampires feed on him. She actually goes to Xander. That's not and, season five. That's not till season five. Erase everything I just said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I wrote Did I write it here? Did you okay, write it? I, no, I didn't write it down. That's why I forgot. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, one of the things I love about her relationship with Riley is that Riley is like the slightly more advanced version of Xander. Like he has a better career. He has more stability, but he's still a really insecure kind of asshole type. Um, I really, really, really love the way that the initiative and Riley are portrayed too, because I feel like in showcasing Riley as having these insecurities, we're being very, very honest about what those types of men are like. This is something that a lot of people who have dated military or police officers will say about these men, but has never been portrayed. And and I hadn't seen portrayed before Riley. Um, The way that they regard women, 
and the the way that they view um, tradition above all else to the point of toxicity. Right. So um, Riley is just like a he's different, but um, we also see the return of like a lot of um, other people. So we sort of get like so back. So like I said, so like we had said before, something that um, is really smart about Buffy is that they don't really ever dispose of like their characters uh, unless you're black. And um, we get Ethan Rain. Ethan Rain from like I think season two and season one comes back to sort of like mess around. Faith comes back, and we sort of get a foreshadowing of like the trio that we'll eventually talk about in season seven. Um, and we have a whole episode devoted to Jonathan in season four, um, who was also a sort of mild player in season three and two. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I love the, I love the, 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 the cast of, um, constantly cycling recurring characters. Buffy has a great catalog of recurring characters, not just supporting ones. And I think they handle them really, really well. Right. Um, they do handle them super well. Um, one of the things I was going to say, like, what am I? So one of like the most iconic episodes of Buffy, um, in that like people, I think TV critics still talk about this episode. Uh, and I want to say, uh, it got them a nomination for an Emmy, but it didn't win the Emmy. Um, that comes later. Uh, was Hush. Uh, it's season four, episode 10. Um, Hush uh, is, like like I said, one of the most iconic episodes of this season. Um, and it sort of takes place. It's an episode where nobody speaks the whole episode. Um which if you're like any sort of like a uh, screenwriter, you know that like that is like that is some shit to like have an entire episode where nobody talks. Um, it introduces it ha- it introduces an episodic villain of the three and the three end up uh, taking the voices of everyone in Sunnydale and everyone in Buffy and the crew have to sort of fight them um, without their voices, even though, like, that's the way that they're able to be defeated is through their voice. Um, it's a masterful use, not only of action, but, like, of score. I think the scoring in this episode is, like, unmatched. Um, and the scoring and the sound editing is truly great and awesome mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. just it's something I really love about season four um I love all those things about season four but one of the things I really love is how um we kind of broaden out more into the supporting characters lives um Willow is in her first relationship with another woman and she's she's divesting more of her energy into learning witchcraft and season four is when we really start to see Willow coming into her own, a life separate from both Buffy and Xander. And um, this becomes a critical part of the narrative in future seasons, which I love to see. This season, um, Oz and Willow also break up. And I think the way that the breakup is handled is 
iconic. It's something that everybody should see so that they know what a mature civil breakup is supposed to look like. Well, I mean, <laughs> cheats on her. Mm-hmm. Well, initial. Well, I guess there's some background. He initially cheats on her, and um, then he just sort of like leaves, and then he comes back. I think in what New Moon Rising, yeah, episode nineteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so he cheats on her. He comes back. He realizes that um, she is with um, Tara now. And they basically have a conversation about why they don't really need to be together anymore. Mm. And they go their separate ways amicably. That's true. That is real. They do, like, they, it it just ends, like. And this might seem, like, very. I guess what's the word I'm looking for? This might seem very tame, especially on a show like Buffy, where everybody's relationships are hyper dramatic and like high key toxic. But this isn't just um, normal. It's like it's revolutionary because it's so tame, because I can like break up with you without having to look over my shoulder or or you know um you know feel like my life is in danger or my future relationships are in danger or that I'll never love anyone again um and it's just it ends and it ends when it needed to, it needed to end and it was good while it lasted the end <laughs> real 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 um if i had to some iconic episodes from season 4 um the freshman uh living conditions is definitely a great episode um hush uh which is hold on let me do this again so if i had to pick some iconic episodes from season four i'd pick season four episode one the freshman um season four episode two living conditions season four episode 10 hush um Season four, episode 15, This Year's Girl. Um, season episode 17, Superstar. And um, season episode 18, Where the Wild Things Are. Okay, um, I agree with that. And Hush is definitely my favorite season. Um, my favorite episode of that season as well. Season um, four, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that... Um, one of the things that makes that kind of make us feel off kilter, there are a few things that make us feel off kilter with season four. Um, and I love that the writers do this, um, kind of frame it as this period of adjustment is because they are in college. Um, there's, there's not even the pretense of adult supervision anymore. (laughs) Right. And so they're living these different lives and Buffy is also transitioning out of this this really um, serious relationship that was fraught with a lot of heartache and drama and pain and love. And um, um, Oz and Willow and Xander are transitioning into college life. Now, when Oz is introduced into the series, he's a senior, but he doesn't, he, um, he was kind of like doing whatever and just skating through his senior year. So he failed and had to repeat it. He goes into college in the same time that they do, they go to college, which I thought was a great turn. But while one of the things that's great about Oz's personality is that he is very, very casual, very go with the flow, and he doesn't like push anything. And his character is just as unanxious as Willow is anxious when they first meet. Um, 
And it it kind of seems like by the time Oz leaves her life, a lot of that has rubbed off on her and she has more calmness and more self-assuredness than when they entered college. Right. Definitely. Um, yeah, for me, season four is a bit uneven, but I think, uh, like Em said, that's, I think that's purposefully done because college is like that sort of big transition period and they are going into college. And, um, I think that's just always the, the plight of teen shows. Um, whenever, when everyone goes to college, there's just, that season is always a bit hard and everyone has to like find their footing and you know um, i just have to say one thing thank you for putting them in college because i don't want to see eight seasons of y'all in high school <laughs> thank you thank you writers for putting them real. in college season four of buffy is it good is it bad is it basic uh i want to say it it's just basic I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go on the, on the scale of basic too. I think the way that Oz and Willow's relationship was handled was good. I think the introduction of Tara was good. I think good, putting them yeah. in college was good, but everything else was kind of basic. The initiative was basic. The return of a very neutered Spike was basic. Yeah. Um, like, and Faith wasn't even utilized in this um the season the way that she should have been. Um, cause she was in a coma, for, <laughs> but like, so like a lot of, well, stuff. she wakes up, well, she wakes up and she's out for like two episodes and then she just runs to, and then she runs to angel. Yeah. Like, like the show. The character that I loved was super underutilized. I love the way she was utilized on angel when she went there. Like Eliza Dushku never all hits, no misses, but yeah, I felt like I would have wanted her to wake up a little bit earlier and shake shit up in season four. <laughs> That's real. That's depth. That's deep. So um, I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Um, I'm Alex. Uh, and I'm M. And we cannot wait to come to you with part two of this recap of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. All right. Check we hope you've enjoyed your first episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. Hey, you guys, thank you for listening to our first episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. Please subscribe to our Patreon for this episode and some more bonus content, like some particularly hilarious thoughts about our viewing of 90 Day Fiance. I hope you had a good time. Bye.